We're going to talk about a very sobering subject today, and that is what Jesus believed about the afterlife, about the afterlife, okay? And this is a series, we're in the 10 parts of it now, and basically what we're doing is we're saying, well, what did Jesus believe about a given subject, about a given issue, about a given teaching about something from the Bible. What did he actually believe? And I know, again, that for some that sounds a little bit strange, Jesus believing in something. Uh, But Jesus was a man also. He's not only God in the flesh, he's a man, and he has these two natures. And so we can rightfully ask these questions, what did Jesus believe? How does, he, how does he view certain things? And today, we're going to look at this subject of the afterlife, all right? So I want to ask you a leading question, and um, you probably got this already this morning at about 9.30, and I want you to think of any future event in life that has a 100% chance of happening to you and to everyone you know, all right? It's going to happen. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to every single person that you know. In fact, it's going to happen to every single person on the planet. It has a 100% chance of happening to you. It hasn't already happened to you, or you wouldn't be answering the question. Uh, That's a hint, but uh, it will happen. And uh, you will will know when it happens, and everybody around you is going to know when it happens, most probably, because it has a 100% chance, a 100% certainty of happening, all right? And I want you to post your answers if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube. Go ahead and post your answers there, and we'll try and put some of those into the broadcast as well. And I would invite you to like, share, subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit the notifications bell, all of that. Remember, there are people watching uh, not only now, but people who will watch recordings of this later. There are people who are going to listen to this message on several audio platforms as well. So don't be just a spectator, be a participant, all right? While you're putting up your answers, uh, you probably know what the answer that I'm thinking of is, but I want to read to you something uh, from a New Testament scholar on the subject of the afterlife. His name is Bart Ehrman, and uh, 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 Professor Ehrman is extremely popular uh, uh, writer and a very prolific and a best-selling author and uh, uh, is now an agnostic-slash-atheist uh, but grew up in the church, went to, uh, you know, conservative uh, uh, Bible college and theological seminary, and somewhere along the line uh, gave up those beliefs and is now, again, a very successful writer and scholar of the New Testament. And this is what he says about the afterlife uh, in a recent book uh, about heaven and hell. He says, there are over 2 billion Christians in the world, the vast majority of whom believe in heaven and hell. You die and your soul goes either to everlasting bliss or torment. The vast majority of these people naturally assume this is what Jesus himself taught. But that is not true, so says Bart Ehrman. 
Neither Jesus nor the Hebrew Bible he interpreted endorsed the view that departed souls go to paradise or everlasting pain. I want to talk to you today about what Jesus believed about the afterlife, because if Mr. Ehrman is correct, then there's two billion people on earth, at least in his view, that are incorrect. And we're both looking at the same book, apparently. Uh, I've read through this article that was published in Time Magazine in 2020. And it is interesting, the passages that uh, Professor Ehrman refers to, uh, but it's also interesting the passages that he doesn't refer to. So what I'm going to give you today is a mass amount of information from Jesus, an observation about what Jesus believed about the afterlife. You're going there. There is a 100% chance that you are going to pass through the curtain and you are going to the other side. Even a person who doesn't believe in the afterlife is going to experience natural death and is going to pass from this world. The question is, is there something there? Is there something on the other side? And if there is, what is it? I hear a little bit of scratching in the microphone. We'll try and correct that uh, over on our side, but please uh, put up with it while you can hear it if you're hearing it online, okay? So the answer to the question, 100% certainty, that's death. That's passing over to the other side, and that is going to come your way. You know people who have already experienced it. It's going to come your way at some point in the future, and the question is, what did Jesus believe about it, okay? How's that scratching? Are we... Uh, could be something in the um, the analog snakehead there. Just give us a couple of minutes and we'll try and correct it for you. Not sure if you're hearing it online, but we're hearing it in the house. Uh, let me read to you something that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. But it has now been revealed, and the it in context is grace. So grace has now been revealed through our appearing, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So how did he do that? How did Jesus bring life and immortality to to life. What does he believe about the afterlife? This is of great importance to us all. You know, we talk about uh, pandemic and we talk about COVID and what are your chances of catching COVID and, you know, maybe you're lowering your chances, maybe you're by doing such and such, or maybe your chances are going up or whatever, and well, am I going to catch it? Am I not going to catch it? There's a 100% chance that you are going to pass away. There's only one thing, at least according to Jesus, that can stop it, and that one thing is his coming, which according to Jesus will be a, a, a worldwide supernatural event to come. We're going to try and switch mics, yes? Okay, you let me know when you're ready. Thank you so much, Kingston. And Janet and Sarah, okay, well, whatever they're doing, we're going to keep it going, okay? Uh, so I want to give you three observations. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today 
that that is uh, uh, from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture, but this is Jesus's belief in the afterlife. Okay, so if you're looking for a good Bible study over the coming uh, the coming days, and you really want to dig into this, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today, really, really quickly, and try and simplify it and give you three observations today. All right. Uh, So number one, Jesus's belief in the afterlife is connected to his second coming, all right? These things are connected in Jesus's mind, and you just have to read even the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew in order to uh, to see this. Uh, and you see these different kinds of phrases. So when you go to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and you look at this, this magnificent Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, you see passages like this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, who is the they? Where is the kingdom of heaven? He talks about people being blessed and great is your reward in heaven. He talks about other people and that they would be subject to judgment. He talks about being in danger of the fire of hell in that message. And the word he uses there is a word uh, that meant, uh, it's the word Gehenna. It's a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. He talks about storing up treasures in heaven. Where is that? Why is he talking about it if it doesn't exist? He seems to be implying that there is some kind of an afterlife. He talks about a day to come. Many will say to me on that day. He talks about people who say, I did this and I did this in your name. End of uh, Matthew chapter 7, for example, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Where is that kingdom? He seems to be implying an afterlife here. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, did we not drive out demons and perform miracles? miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. This is, this is all things in the afterlife, and they seem to be connected to a day of judgment, a day where Jesus is the judge. And that's just looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. You you start flipping through your New Testament, you get to Matthew chapter 8, and you see a phrase like this, many will take their places at the feast what feast? He talks about this feast at the end of time. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. This is the faith of the centurion story and how this Gentile man seemed to show more faith than the children of Israel. And Jesus uses it in, as an example to talk about the future judgment. Again, Matthew chapter 10, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. What day of judgment? He seems to be uh, connecting the afterlife to the future event of his coming and of his judgment. And Jesus does this over and over and over again. I sometimes wonder why uh, people uh, ask the question, 
asked, why is it that Jesus seems to be so nice and so kind and so loving in the New Testament, but God seems so mean and so angry and so judgmental in the Old Testament? Folks, uh, and you're about to see it, Jesus is the person who speaks more about hell and the doctrine of hell and the reality of hell than anyone in the entire Bible even more than than Paul does, even more than arguably the book of Revelation, is Jesus is the one who is talking about this this idea. Okay, so uh, Matthew chapter 10, for example, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and and body in hell. Or again, this word, this curious word that he chooses, Gehenna, this garbage dump that was always burning outside of the city of Jerusalem. All of these things, you put them together, and it seems like he's connecting this time of judgment, this time that he will return, this time where he will he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He's connecting this with the afterlife. This is a future thing. This is something that we're all going to be affected by. Well, how can we be affected by it if there's no afterlife? He seems to connect these two um, you can think of it this way. Death is, I'll use a fancy word, this is an eschatological event. This is an event in your life that is associated with the end of time. In some ways, and I know this is going to sound really, really strange to you, in some ways, death is a gift. Because when a person passes away, they enter into that supernatural reality. And for the person who is a a disciple, a follower of Christ, they enter into a supernatural reality that involves him. And this is this is a, a great gift, but it's not a gift that's attainable while you're here alive in this world, in this uh, life. And Jesus speaks often of this time of judgment. He speaks often of the world being judged, and he connects this with his return. So uh, Matthew chapter uh, 11 Again, speaking to uh, these different cities of his time and cities that were unrepentant, even his own hometown, uh, verse 23 of Matthew 11, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? When? This is a future thing that he's talking about. No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles and the word depths there that he uses, another curious Greek word, is the word Hades that he uses. Seems to be the place of the dead. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, yes, Sodom, from the book of Genesis, it would be it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. These things put together strongly, strongly suggest that there is an afterlife again and there is a judgment to come that's connected with it. Matthew chapter 12, anyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Very disturbing passage, either in this age or in the age to come. 
clearly showing again that he believes in the afterlife. Uh, the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, where uh, you've got... Um, uh, these people who plant seed and and they find that somebody's planted weeds amongst the seed. And, you know, what are they going to do? While they were sleeping, somebody seems to have sown weeds among the wheat, and uh, the wheat sprouts up and formed heads, but the weeds come up also. This is Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 and onwards. And so the servants ask in this story that Jesus is telling, well, what do you want us to do? Do you want to pull up all these weeds? And and the, the, the boss says, well, an enemy did this. So what should we do? Should we pull them all up? And the boss says, no, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. And then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Later on, the disciples ask him, can you explain this story that you told to us? And Jesus interprets it very, very directly. And he says, look, the one who sowed the seed, the good seed, that's the son of man, referring to himself there. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom, the people who become children of God, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. The weeds are the sons of the evil one those who re reject God, those who follow the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. Jesus apparently believes in all these things. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. A time to come, a time in the future, a time in the afterlife. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin. And all who do evil, they will throw them into, get this, the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's from the mouth of Jesus. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So we see again this, this and this is just, just uh, looking at the surface of the gospel of Matthew. You see this, Matthew chapter 19 and the story of the rich young man who talks to Jesus about following the law and about doing everything correctly. And, and Jesus uh, challenges this man. And he says, if you want to be perfect, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure where? in heaven, and then come and follow me. And Jesus continues teaching the disciples on the back end of this story because they say, well, who then can be saved then? This guy followed all the rules, and now he has to do this? I mean, this is impossible. And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And look what he says at the back end of the chapter. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal 
life, speaking again of the afterlife. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Matthew 23, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, this this, uh, uh, last sermon, big sermon of Jesus Uh, that we call the Olivet Discourse, you read through this whole thing, and he's talking about the end of time. He's talking about his soon return, and he's connecting this to a time of global judgment. Matthew chapter 25, the back end of the chapter, then they will go away to eternal punishment, speaking of the unrighteous, and the righteous to eternal life. This is a future event. This is an afterlife event. Folks, that's just skimming through the Gospel of Matthew. It's all over Jesus' lips. It's all over the things that he teaches. It's coming out of him all the time. Clearly, he believes in the afterlife, and he believes that death is connected somehow to his second coming, but Jesus goes even beyond this, and he believes in a conscious afterlife before the resurrection of the body. I'll repeat that. A conscious afterlife before the resurrection of the body. So you see Jesus talk about a mass resurrection. Daniel speaks of this as well at the end of uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And the Jewish people believed in this. But Jesus goes even further and he reveals to us that we are conscious even when we pass from this world. Even when we pass away in this uh, life. So uh, Mark chapter 5, uh, for example, flipping over to Mark's gospel, and you see uh, the story of two healings there. One is a sick woman, and one is a child who has died. And you see how Jesus addresses this child who has passed away, and uh, it, it's shocking to people. So uh, Jesus runs into the synagogue ruler. Finally, his daughter has passed away, and uh, and they say it's over. Why bother the teacher anymore? This is Mark chapter 5 and verse 35. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. And so he didn't let anyone uh, with him. He's going to go into the, the room where the child is. He brings only Peter, James, and John, the brother of, uh, of James. And when they come to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus sees this commotion. The people are already wailing, which was the custom back then. They're crying, and, and Jesus says, why all this commotion? And why all this wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. Curious term, curious view that he has, so curious that verse 40 says, but they all laughed at him. Jesus didn't think that this child was gone. He uses the term sleeping as an image. When a person is sleeping, they're not dead. They may not be physically doing anything, but they're not dead. And Jesus seems to use this term. After he put them all out, he took the child's parents and the disciples who were with him. He had a very small group. And he goes into the child. He takes her by the hand. And he says to her, translated into English at least, little girl, I say to you, get up. 
And immediately, the girl stands up and walks around. She's 12 years old. They're astonished by this miracle. But notice what Jesus says. She's not dead. She's sleeping. They find this funny. It's not funny to Jesus. He seems to show a view that even when a person is dead, somehow they are alive in some way. You see uh, the famous story where Jesus... Uh, challenges or is challenged by uh, the Sadducees. Uh, I have it listed there in uh, Mark chapter 5. I think that's a mistake, Uh, but it's also in Luke chapter 20. And uh, this is a a little test that the Pharisees give to Jesus. And we've talked about this before in this series. We talked about marriage and what Jesus believed about marriage. And they say, okay, you believe in the resurrection of the dead. You believe that dead people are actually going to get up out of their graves at some point in the future and face judgment and so on. And so he tells a little story or they tell Jesus a little story and they say, listen, we've got this lady and, uh, you know, it says in the law of Moses, the lady gets married, but if the lady's husband passes away and leaves no children. She's got to marry the brother of that guy and so on and so on and so on so she can propagate the family line. So they push Jesus and they test Jesus and they said, okay, the lady gets married to this guy and the guy passes away and then she marries another, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy. And, uh, and at the end of it, she's still got no kids. She's married to all seven. So tell us, Jesus, who's going to be her husband? at the resurrection, trying to push Jesus to see the, the, the res- this idea of the resurrection is folly. And look, look at Jesus' answer. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children. Now remember, he doesn't say they are angels. He says they're like the angels, since they are children of the resurrection. And he doesn't stop there. But, he says, in the account of the bush, that would be the burning bush from Exodus chapter 3, even Moses showed that the dead rise. And for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These people, what Jesus is saying, these people were dead. And yet Moses calls God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. For to him all are alive. And if you put Mark's account in there as well, He says, you are badly mistaken. So you combine Mark and Luke there in that story. And what Jesus is saying is, not only are you wrong about the resurrection, you're missing a truth about the afterlife, for to him all are alive. Even though they may be physically dead, they seem to be alive somewhere. This is put probably in no stronger terms than in Luke chapter 16 and the story that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, this is Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. Jesus tells a story of a rich man. He's dressed in fine linen and purple, which was a sign of wealth in that day, lives in luxury. And at his uh, gate, there was laid this poor man, a beggar by the name of Lazarus, a lover of God, that meant. 
And this guy's in terrible shape. He's covered with sores. He's longing to even eat the garbage that comes from the man's table. Even the dogs are coming toward this, this guy. He's in terrible shape. And he dies. He physically dies. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, even if people are going to say, well, this is just a parable, Jesus is telling a story based on things that the people understood in that time and based on their beliefs at that time. So it seems to me there's an afterlife that's implied here that's conscious. This man is carried to Abraham's side, and then the rich man dies. He dies, and he is buried. These two men are clearly both physically dead. Verse 23, in hell, which is, uh, again, the Greek word there is Hades that's used, where he was in torment. What? So the rich man is alive, and you're going to see Lazarus is alive even though they're physically dead. He looked up, and he saw Abraham far away, this rich man, and he sees Lazarus by his side, and he tries to communicate with them. Again, these people are all deceased. Abraham is deceased. The rich man is deceased. Lazarus is deceased. Jesus is naming Abraham a real person here, and and he calls to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, so says the rich man, the man who showed by his own behavior that he was not a lover of God, Lazarus, lover of God, this rich man, obviously not showing his behavior that way, and so he calls out to Abraham in, in remorse, in a sense, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. I mean, imagine he never helped Lazarus one time while Lazarus was alive and while he was alive, and now he wants Lazarus to serve him. He says, send Lazarus to help me, to give me some relief because of the torment that I am in. And Abraham replies, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. And in in a way, the bad things were from the rich man. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides this, there is a great chasm that's been fixed. Those who want to come from here to to you cannot. Those who want to cross over from there to here cannot. And so the man answers, I beg you, then send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replies in the story, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the guy says, no, if someone comes from the dead, they will repent. It's too late for me. Maybe it's not too late for them. And the answer, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Wow, this whole thing is showing a conscious afterlife. Abraham uh, apparently has one. Lazarus apparently has one. This rich man apparently has one. To Jesus, these are very, very real things. Uh, Luke chapter 23, and you look at the story of the crucifixion. Luke giving us some uh, some detail here. You see that Jesus is crucified, and there's two criminals with him being executed with him. One is on either side. They've both got different views of Jesus. We'll take a look at that in a moment. But you see what Jesus says to the one guy. 
the one of them, we don't even know his name, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's the back end of a conversation. And Jesus says to him, what? I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, I tell you the truth today. You'll be with me in paradise. You know, you, you, you move the comma there and you can try and change what Jesus is saying. No, when you're on a cross, you're struggling for every word that you're going to breathe and you're going to, to speak very, very carefully. Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth, criminal who's dying on this cross. You're going to die in a few moments, but let me give you hope. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you are going to experience this. And then even when Jesus dies, what does he say? Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This was an immediate thing to Jesus. We see the same thing in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned to death. He looks up and he sees Jesus there in a vision. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Same language that he uses as Jesus used when addressing the Father at his own physical death. There is a clear uh, uh, implication here that Jesus believes in immediate conscious life even after physical death. So it isn't just, well, you know, you're done, you sleep, and that's it. It's over. You don't feel anything. You don't know anything. You don't have a, a soul or a spirit that separates, that goes to be either in the presence of God or to another place. You, you, there's none of that. No, this is not coming from uh, the lips of Jesus. This may come from other ideas, but from Jesus, you see these clear, clear beliefs, and he goes even further. And this is the last little observation for you. Jesus believes that our destination, because that's what everybody wants to know, is where do you go when you die? If there is something after, as Jesus seems to think, then how do you know when you go, where you're going, and how can you be sure of that? Well, Jesus believed that our destination was dependent on him. So you, you go back to uh, uh, Jesus' uh, conversation um, with uh, Nicodemus, and we've looked at this a few times in this series, but you see he, he says to Nicodemus as he uh, uh, meets him at night, and we know the passage, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Well, think of that in the context of the afterlife. What, what is he basing this on? He's basing this on himself. He is the one who is the, the fulcrum. He is the one that is the door. He is the one who determines a person's eternity. It depends on what you do with him. And it's not just simply saying, well, you know, I believe in Jesus and that's it. No, no, Jesus calls people to a high call and to discipleship and to become a follower of his because he is the determiner of our eternal destiny. And this is what he says to Nicodemus. He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. These are, these are imperative to Jesus. He's not saying may not perish. He says shall not perish, as if he himself has the authority to determine this. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. In him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He is the determiner of this. You look at John chapter uh, 5, and you see the same kind of idea. I tell you the truth, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I remember having a conversation uh, with a gentleman who I was working with several years ago uh, when I worked in uh, in the marketplace in commercial printing, and he found out the things that I believe, and we would have religious discussions all the time, and he thought it was quite arrogant. He came from a Roman Catholic background. He thought it was quite arrogant for me to have a certainty that when I die, I'm going to heaven. He said, how can you know that? Well, it's not arrogance. It's based on Jesus. He's the one who said it. You cross over from death to life. That even starts now when a person becomes a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Eternal life starts even now. And you experience a change in your life because of the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in your life. And he, he goes further. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of who? The Son of God, and those who hear will live. He is the determiner of these things. You see this in the story of the raising of Lazarus uh, from the dead in John chapter 11. Again, Jesus showing that he is the determiner of all these things. He, he ends up uh, uh, late uh, at least to everybody else, for the death of his friend, a close friend, uh, Lazarus, another one with that same name, and he weeps over the passing of his friend that you see in the chapter, and he finally arrives on the scene, and he uses this strange uh, uh, term again that Lazarus has fallen asleep in verse 11 of chapter 11. That's the same phrase that Jesus used with the, the, the young child the 12-year-old girl who has passed away, to Jesus, Lazarus is sleeping. And they say to him, he's dead, he's dead. And they, and they don't seem to understand that he's the determiner of these things, and he's going to do something that they're not even going to believe. It, it, the man has been in a tomb for four days. If you had been here, my brother would not have died, so says uh, his sister uh, uh, Martha. And Jesus says to her, well, your brother will rise again, referring to the resurrection. And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And watch what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. He puts the focus on himself. He is the determiner of this. He who believes in me will live 
even though he dies. We read this at gravesides all the time. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She asked the question. He asked the question to her. And I wonder if he asks that same question to us today. And Jesus uh, makes his way ultimately to the tomb. And you see this incredible dramatic thing take take place. He orders them to remove the stone, and they're saying to him, there's going to be an odor. He's been in there for four days. They didn't have the modern customs of embalming and all of that that we do today. And and Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they do what he says, and Jesus looks up to to heaven praying here we talked about this last week and he says father i thank you that you have heard me i knew that you always hear me but i said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent who me lazarus come out he, he, he says emphatically in a loud voice, and you see this man come out. He's all wrapped up in, their, in, the, in the linens, in the strips of linen, similar to the way they would wrap Jesus when Jesus died. This guy comes out all wrapped up, and he's alive. It is an absolute shocking thing, but here you have Jesus demonstrating not only does he have the power to raise a person from the dead physically, that he did right there in that moment, but he is the one who gives people eternal life even when they do pass away. I am the resurrection and the life. He is the determiner of this. You want to know where you're going when you die. You've got to look to Jesus. If you're not looking to him and if you're looking away from him and if you're rejecting him and if you have no interest in him, that's a fearful, fearful way, my friends, to pass from this world into the next. You, you look at that story in Luke chapter 23 and with this uh, we'll, we'll finish. But when you look at this story and you see these two men, one on either side, they are condemned to die by crucifixion. Romans did not make mistakes when they crucified people. People who were crucified died. Jesus knew this. These two criminals knew this. They knew that their end was coming. And you see the attitude of each man. One has one particular attitude toward Jesus. Another has a different attitude toward Jesus. So in verse 39 of Luke 23, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. This man is insulting Jesus while Jesus is being crucified right next to him. He's hurling insults at him, and he's saying to him, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. I mean, presumably, these two are guilty of whatever crime they committed. His view is, well, if you're the Messiah, then save us. Well, why should the Messiah save you? You committed a crime and you're paying for your crime, but your view of the Messiah is, well, he's just going to, he's just going to magically save me and, and himself. And, you know, th- this, his whole concept is completely wrong. This is why he's insulting Jesus. I mean, imagine that while he's dying right next to him, he's insulting him. But the other criminal rebukes him. 
He has a different attitude toward Jesus. Don't you fear God? Since we are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he seems to know, this man is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. He's an innocent man here being crucified. Don't you fear God? Like, why is your attitude toward Jesus this way. And this other criminal, he has a completely different attitude toward Jesus. And look what he says. Slow it down because it goes so fast. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is a whole host of implications in that little phrase that that unnamed man is uttering as he is dying on that cross 2,000 years ago. Number one, he thinks that Jesus, after he's going to die, is going to somehow enter into his kingdom, as if Jesus is a king. He thinks that there's an afterlife. He thinks that Jesus is a king. He thinks that Jesus is going to enter into a kingdom, and he's asking Jesus to remember him and not to forget him when that all comes to be. Wow, he has an amazing understanding of who Jesus is. And look at Jesus' answer. I tell you the truth. He's going to give this man so much courage as he is about to die. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice, he doesn't say, today you've got a real problem, sir, because you're not baptized in water. You need to be baptized in water in order to enter into paradise with me. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, you've got a real problem today, sir. Uh, Today, your problem is you can't enter paradise because your works aren't good enough. Look at you. You're dying on the cross. You're paying for your own sin. You don't have any works to show anything. So you're not going to enter into paradise. No, he recognizes the faith of this man, which is expressed as he's dying on a cross. And he recognizes this man is justified before God because of his faith in me, a theme that you see throughout Luke's gospel. And he gives him the promise of being conscious and alive in paradise with Jesus that very, very same day. And then uh, fairly quickly afterwards, Both of them die. Jesus dies. You see, in John's gospel, they take uh, uh, these, these batons and break the legs of the other two criminals to hasten their death on the cross, and they're gone. But one of them went into paradise with Jesus that very same day. Why? Because his faith and his focus was on Jesus, and he demonstrates that. So the question is, when we ask this, this uh, uh, when, we, when we make this observation of what Jesus believed about the afterlife, I think you can tell that I would disagree with, uh, with Professor Bart Ehrman respectfully on the grounds of the words of Jesus from the entire gospel record. I would disagree. But when we look more importantly about what Jesus believes, the question is, what, what do we do with this? 
What do we do with the person of Jesus? He is the determiner, my friends, and you can be secure. You can know that you are saved. You can know that when you leave this world, you're going to the other side to be with him conscious and alive. You can know that. You can know that you've crossed over from death to life. But the key to that is your, the surrender of your life to Jesus. That is the key. Because he being God is the determiner of these things. I often have done funerals for people. And, and I, have no, I don't know the people very well. Didn't know them. And everybody wants to know where is this person. And all we can do is go back to Jesus and what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, and what Jesus believed. If he rose from the dead, then we better take notice of what he said about this crucial issue of the afterlife. There are some of you who are watching this, and I think right now you, you think more about what happens when you die than maybe you ever did before in your life. Maybe you've lost loved ones already. You wonder where they are, and you think more and more about it. You know, they say the older a person gets, the more interested that they get in, in reading the obituaries. You know, the closer and closer we get to the grave, the more interested we tend to be become in what happens on the other side. The good thing with Jesus is you can know. You can be certain. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you called out to him as that criminal on the cross? As uh, another man in Luke's gospel who, who went to the temple uh, to, to pray, and then there's a religious man who's at the same temple, and the religious man says, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here. Uh, I, I do all the right things. I do all the good things. I'm not like this guy over here. And yet that other man, he doesn't even, he doesn't even raise his head. He, he, he beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that is the one, that is the man who went home justified before God, just like the criminal on the cross. And I, I just want to lead you in a very, very simple prayer as we close today. And I wonder if there are those of you and you're not sure. You're not sure if you're a disciple or not. You're not sure if you're going to heaven when you die. You're not sure of your eternal destiny. You can be. What it takes is surrender. Jesus, we come to you this morning, and we, we, we uh, humble ourselves before you. And Lord, I pray on behalf of those who are watching, those who are going to watch, those who are going to listen later online, and I say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. I've made a, a mess of my life searching for, for joy and searching for pleasure in all the wrong things. I've made myself my own God. I've made something else God, but today, Jesus... I want you to be the God of my life, and I surrender myself to you. I pray that you would take me as your own. I want to become your child today and be able to know that I have eternal life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
you prayed that today, today, I'd like you to reach out to me and contact me. You can do so through our website at citypointchurch.ca. Look forward to being with you on Wednesday as well as we continue our Zoom series on the Alpha Course. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday today. Friday afternoon, and Jesus is dead. His brutalized body hanging without life on a cross dropped into a hole in the dirt. His executioners had dug the holes, prepared the place, and done their job with ruthless efficiency. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. The hope of mankind overcome by powers of hell, by the shadow of a grave. once knew what it was like to rule and reign on the earth. We were made to live in the light, in relationship, in purpose. We were made for more than what we've come to accept as normal. Ever since the garden, Satan and his kingdom have been tightening their grip. Darkness has ruled evil, chaos, suffering, hopelessness. We've been enslaved and crippled by the holes the enemy has been digging for us too. Instead of killing the Messiah, the cross became a catalyst for salvation. The hole that was dug to hold an instrument of shame and death was instead filled with an instrument to bring healing and new life. That's the way God is. Nothing is impossible with Him. He's always restoring, always renewing, always able to take what was meant for evil and turn it for good, to take our graves and turn them into gardens. Why? because he never gave up on his plan. He has never given up on us. He knows what we don't, that you can't have resurrection life without death, Jesus. He died so we can have lives of purpose and power over the grave. He is not dead, he is alive. And because he lives, we can live again.